Section 29 of Celebrated Travels and Travellers, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Celebrated Travels and Travellers, Volume 3, The Great Explorers and Travellers of the Nineteenth Century, by Jules Verne. Second Part, Chapter 2, Part 1. French Circumnavigators 5 At the close of the year 1821, the Marquis de Clermont-Tonnerre, then Minister of Marine, received the scheme of a new voyage from two young officers, Messieurs Duperry and Dumont de Ville. The former, second in command de Fresnay on board the Uranie, after having rendered valuable assistance to the expedition by his scientific researches and surveys, had, within the year, returned to France. The other, the colleague of Captain Garnier, had brought himself into notice during the hydrographical cruises in the Mediterranean and Black Seas, which it had fallen to Captain Garnier to complete. He had a fine taste for botany and art and had been one of the first to draw attention to the artistic value of the Venus of Milos, which had just been discovered. These two young savants proposed, in the plan submitted by them, to make special researches into three departments of natural science, magnetism, meteorology, and the configuration of the globe. In the geographical department, said Duperry, we would propose to verify or to rectify, either by direct or by chronometrical observations, the positions of a great number of points in the different parts of the globe, especially among the numerous island groups of the Pacific Ocean, notorious for shipwrecks, and so remarkable for the character and the form of the shoals, sandbanks, and reefs of which they in part consist, and also to trace new routes through the dangerous archipelago and the Society Islands, side by side with those taken by Quiros, Wallace, Bougainville, and Cook, to carry on hydrographical surveys in continuation of those made in the voyages of D'Entrecasteaux and of Freycinet in Polynesia, New Holland, and the Malacca Islands, and particularly to visit the Caroline Islands discovered by Magellan, about which, with the exception of the eastern side, examined in our own time by Captain Kotzebue, we have only very vague information, communicated by the missionaries and by them, learnt from stories told by savages who had lost their way and were driven in their canoes upon the Marianne Islands. The languages, character and customs of these islanders must also receive special and careful attention. The naval doctors Garnon and Lesson were placed in charge of the natural history department, whilst the staff was composed of officers most remarkable for their scientific attainments, among whom may be mentioned Messieurs Lesage, Jacquinot, Bérard, Lotin, de Blois et de Blois-Ville. The Academy of Sciences took up the plan of research submitted by the originators of this expedition with much enthusiasm and furnished them with minute instructions in which were set forth with care the points on which accurate scientific information was especially desirable at the same time the instruments 
supplied to the explorers were the most finished and complete of their kind. The vessel chosen for the expedition was the Coquille, a small ship, not drawing more than from twelve to thirteen feet of water, which was lying in ordinary at Toulon. The time spent in refitting, stowing the cargo, arming the ship, prevented the expedition from starting earlier than the 11th of August, 1822. The island of Tenerife was reached on the 28th of the same month, and there the officers hoped to be able to make a few gleanings after the rich harvest of knowledge which their predecessors had reaped, but the Council of Health in the island, having received information of an outbreak of yellow fever on the shores of the Mediterranean, imposed on the coquille a quarantine of fifteen days. It happened, however, that at that period political opinion was in a state of fervid excitement at Tenerife, and party spirit ran so high in society that the inhabitants found it hard to come together without also coming to blows. Under these circumstances, it is easy to imagine that the French officers did not indulge in violent regrets over the privations which they had to sustain. The eight days during which their stay at Tenerife lasted were given up exclusively to the revictualling of the ship and to magnetic and astronomical observations. Towards the end of September, anchor was weighed, and on the 6th of October the work of surveying the islands of Martin Vaz and of Trinidad was commenced. The former are nothing more than bare rocks rising out of the sea of a most forbidding aspect. The island of Trinidad is highland, rugged and barren, with a few trees crowning the southern point. This island is none other than the famous Ascensal, now called Ascension, which for three centuries had been the object of exploring research. In 1700 it was taken possession of by the celebrated Halley, in the name of the English government, but it had to be ceded to the Portuguese, who formed a settlement there. La Perouse found it still in existence at the same place in 1785. The settlement, which turned out expensive and useless, was abandoned a short time after the visit just referred to, and the island was left in the occupation of the dogs, pigs and goats whose progenitors had entered the island in company with the early colonists. When he left the island of Trinidad, Duperry proposed to steer a direct course for the Falkland Islands, but an accidental damage, in the repair of which no time was to be lost, compelled him to alter his course for the island of St. Catherine, where only he could obtain without any delay the wood required for new yards and masts, as well as provisions, which from their abundance could there be bought very cheap. As he drew near to the island, he was delighted with the grand and picturesque scene presented by its dense forests, where laurel trees, sassafras, cedars, orange trees and mangroves, intermingled with banana and palms, with their feathery foliage waving gracefully in the breeze, just four days before the corvette anchored off St. Catherine, Brazil had cast off the authority of the mother country and declared its independence, 
by the proclamation of Prince Don Pedro d'Alcantara as Emperor. This led the commander to dispatch a mission consisting of Monsieur Deville, de Blosville, Gabea and Gano to the capital of the island, Nossa Senhora del Destero, to make inquiries about the political change and to learn how far it might modify the friendly relations of the country with France. It appeared that the administration of the province was in the hands of a junto, but orders were at once given to allow the French travellers to cut what wood they might stand in need of, and the governor of the fort of Santa Cruz was requested to further the scientific inquiries of the expedition by all the means at his command. As to provisions, however, there was considerable difficulty, for the merchants had transferred their funds to Rio, in apprehension of what the political change might result in. It is probable that this circumstance accounts for the commander of the Coquille finding the course of business not run smooth in a port which had received the warm recommendations of Captains Kruzenstern and Kotzebue. The narrative of the travellers states that the inhabitants were living in expectation of the island being shortly attacked with a view to recolonization, which they considered would be tantamount to their enslavement. The decree issued on the 1st of August, 1822, calling on all Brazilians to arm themselves for the defence of their shores, and proclaiming under all circumstances a war of partisans, had given rise to these fears. The measures which Prince Don Pedro propounded were equally generous and vigorous, and had created a favourable opinion of his character and of his desire to promote freedom. Full of confidence in his purposes, the strong party in favour of independence were filled with enthusiasm, expressing itself all the more boisterously, as for so long a time their fervid aspirations had been kept under restraint. They now gave open demonstration of their joy by making the towns of Nossa Senora del Destro, Laguna and San Francisco one blaze of light with their illuminations, and marching through the streets singing verses in honour of Don Pedro. But the excitement which had been thus strikingly manifested in the towns was not shared by the quiet, peace-loving dwellers in the rural districts, to whose breasts political passion was an entire stranger. And there cannot be a doubt that, if Portugal had been in a position to enforce her decrees by the dispatch of a fleet, the province would have been easily reconquered. The Coquilles set sail again on the 30th of October. When to the east of Rio de la Plata, she was caught in one of those formidable gales, there called Pampero, but had the good fortune to weather it without sustaining any damage. While in this part of the ocean, Duperry made some interesting observations on the current of the Plate River. Freycinet had already established the fact of its flowing at the rate of two miles and a half an hour at a distance of a hundred leagues to the east of Montevideo. It was reserved to the commander of the Coquille to ascertain that the current is sensibly felt at a much greater distance. He proved, moreover, that the water of the river, resisted by that of the ocean, is forcibly divided into two branches running in the direction of the two banks of the river at its mouth. And finally, 
he accounts for the comparative shallowness of the sea down to the shores of the magellan strait by the immense residuum of earth held in suspension by the waters of la plata and deposited daily along the coast of south america before entering berkeley's sound the coquille driven by a favourable breeze passed immense shoals of whales and dolphins flocks of gulls and numerous flying fish the ordinary tenants of those tempestuous regions the falkland isles were reached and duperry with a few of his fellow travellers felt a lively pleasure at revisiting the land which had been to them the place of refuge for three months after their shipwreck in the Uranie. They paid a visit to the spot where the camp had been pitched. The remains of the corvette were almost entirely embedded in sand, and what was visible of it bore marks of the appropriations which had been made by the whalers who had followed them in that place. On all sides were scattered miscellaneous fragments, carronades with the knobs broken off, pieces of the rigging, tattered clothes, shreds of sails, unrecognisable rags mingled with the bones of the animals which the castaways had killed for food. This scene of our recent calamity, Duperry observes, were an aspect of desolation which was rendered still gloomier by the barrenness of the land and the dark rainy weather prevailing at the time of our visit. Nevertheless, it had for us an inexplicable sort of attraction, and left a melancholy impression on our minds, which was not effaced till long after we had left the Falkland Islands well behind us. The stay of Duperry at the Falklands was prolonged to the 17th of December. He took up his residence in the midst of the ruins of the settlement founded by Bougainville, in order to execute certain repairs which the condition of his vessel required. The crew provided themselves by fishing and hunting with an ample supply of food. Everything necessary was found in abundance except fruit and vegetables, and having laid in abundant stores, all prepared to confront the dangers of the passage round Cape Horn. At first the coquille had to struggle against strong winds from the southwest and violent currents. These were succeeded by squalls and hazy weather, until the island of Mocha was reached on the 19th of January, 1823. Of this island a brief mention has already been made. Tipperi places it in 38 degrees 20 minutes 30 seconds south latitude and 76 degrees 21 minutes 55 seconds west longitude, and reckons it to be about 24 miles in circumference. Consisting of a chain of mountains of moderate elevation sloping down towards the sea, it was the rendezvous of the early explorers of the Pacific. It furnished the ships touching there, now a merchantman, now a pirate, with horses and with wild pigs, the flesh of which had a well-known reputation for delicacy of flavour. It was also a good supply of pure fresh water, as well as some European fruits such as apples, peaches, and cherries, the growth of trees planted here by those who first took possession of the island. In 1823, however, these resources had all but disappeared, 
through the wasteful practices of improvident whalers. At no great distance might be seen the two round eminences which marked the mouth of the river Biobio, the small island of Quebra Olas, and that of Quiriquina, and these passed, the Bay of Conception opened to view, where was a solitary English whaler about to double the cape, to which was entrusted the correspondence for home, as well as the notes of the work that had been already accomplished. On the day after the arrival of the Coquille, as soon as the morning sun had lit up the bay, the melancholy and desolate appearance of the place, which had taken everyone by surprise on the previous evening, became still more depressing. The name of the town was Calcahuano, and the picture it presented was one of houses in ruins and silent streets. A few wretched canoes ready to fall to pieces were on the beach. Near them loitered a few poorly clad fishermen, while in front of the tumble-down cottages and roofless huts sat women in rags employed in combing one another's hair. In contrast with this human squalor, the surrounding hills and woods, the gardens and the orchards, were clothed in the most splendid foliage. On every side flowers displayed their gorgeous colours, and fruits proclaimed their ripeness in tints of gold. Overhead, a glowing sun, a sky without a cloud, completed the bitter irony of the spectacle. All this ruined desolation and wretchedness were the outward and visible signs of a series of revolutions. At St. Catherine, the French travellers had been witnesses of the declaration of Brazilian independence. On the opposite side of the continent, they were spectators of the downfall of Director O'Higgins. This official had evaded the summons of the Congress, had sacrificed the interests of the agricultural community to those of the traders and merchants by the imposition of direct taxes and the lowering of customs duties, was openly accused, as well as his ministers, of peculation, and as the result of all this malversation, the greater part of the population had risen in revolt. The movement against O'Higgins was led by a general Don Raymond Frere y Serrano, who gave formal assurances to the explorers that the political disturbance would be no impediment to the revictualling of the coquille. On the 26th of January, two corvettes arrived at Conception. They brought a regiment under the command of a French official, Colonel Beauchef, who came to assist General Frere. The regiment, which had been organised by the exertions of Colonel Beauchef, was in point of steadiness, discipline and knowledge of drill, one of the smartest in the Chilean army. On the 2nd of February, the officers of the Coquille proceeded to Concepcion to pay a visit to General Frere. The nearer they approached the city, the more fields were lying waste, the more ruined houses were seen, the fewer people were visible, while their clothing had almost reached the vanishing point. At the entrance of the town itself stood a mast with the head of a notorious bandit affixed to the top, one Benavides, a ferocious savage, more wild beast than man, 
whose name was long execrated in Chile for the horrible atrocities he had committed. The interior of the town was found as desolate in appearance as the approach to it. Having been set fire to by each party that had successively been victorious, conception was nothing more than a heap of ruins amongst which loitered a little remnant of scantily clothed inhabitants, the wretched residuum of a once flourishing population. Grass was growing in the streets. The bishop's palace and the cathedral were the only buildings still standing, and these, roofless and gutted, would not be able much longer to resist the dilapidating influence of the climate. General Freire, before placing himself in opposition to O'Higgins, had arranged a peace with the Araucanians, an indigenous tribe distinguished for their bravery, who had not only maintained their own independence, but were always ready, when opportunity offered, to encroach on the Spanish territory. Some of these natives were employed as auxiliary troops in the Chilean army. Duperry saw them, and, having obtained from General Freire and Colonel Beauchef trustworthy information, has given a not very flattering description of them, of which the substance shall be here given. The Araucanians are of an ordinary stature, in complexion, copper-coloured, with small, black, vivacious eyes, a rather flat nose and thick lips, the result of which is an expression of brutal ferocity. Divided into tribes, each one jealous of another, all animated by an unbridled lust of plunder and ever on the move, their lives are spent in perpetual warfare. The mounted Araucanian is armed with a long lance, a long cutlass, sabre-shaped, called a machete, and the lasso, in the use of which they are extremely expert, while the horse he rides is usually swift. Sometimes they are known, says Duperry, to receive under their protection vanquished enemies and become their defenders. But the motive prompting them to this seemingly generous conduct is always one of special vindictiveness, the fact being that their real object is the total extermination of some tribe allied with the opposite party. Among themselves, hatred is the ruling passion. It is the only enduring bond of fidelity. All display undoubted courage, spirit, recklessness and implacability towards their enemies, whom they massacre with a shocking insensibility. Haughty in manner and revengeful in disposition, they treat all strangers with unqualified suspicion. But they are hospitable and generous to all whom they take as friends. All their passions are easily excited, but they are inordinately sensitive with regard to their liberty and their rights, which they are ever ready to defend sword in hand. Never forgetting an injury, they know not how to forgive. Nothing less than the life-blood of their enemies can quench their thirst for vengeance. Duperry pledges himself to the truth of the picture which he has here drawn of these savage children of the Andes, who at least deserve the credit of having, from the sixteenth century to the present day, 
managed to preserve their independence against the attack of all invaders. After the departure of General Freire and the troops he led away with him, Duperé took advantage of the opportunity to get his vessel provisioned as quickly as possible. The water and the biscuits were soon on board, but longer time was necessary to procure supplies of coal, which, however, was to be got without any other expense than that of paying the muleteers who transported it to the beach from a mine scarcely beneath the level of the earth where it was to be picked up for nothing. Although the events happening at Conception during the detention there of the Coquille were far from being cheerful, the prevailing depression could not hold out against the traditional festivities of the Carnival. Dinners, receptions and balls recommenced, and the departure of the troops made itself felt only in the paucity of cavaliers. The French officers, in acknowledgment of the hospitable welcome afforded to them, gave two balls at Talahuano, and several families came from Concepcion for the sole purpose of being present at them. Unfortunately, Duperi's narrative breaks off at the date of his quitting Chile, and there is no longer any official record from which to gather the details of a voyage so interesting and successful. Far from being able to trace step by step from original documents the course of the expedition, as has been done in the case of other travellers, we are obliged in our turn to epitomise other epitomies now lying before us. It is an unpleasing task, as little agreeable to the reader, as it is difficult for the writer, who, while bound to respect facts, is no longer able to enliven his narrative with personal observations and the generally lively stories of the travellers themselves. However, some few of the letters of the navigator to the Minister of Marine have been published, from which have been extracted the following details. End of section 29